Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today is Dr. Nairi Balkarian. Did I get that right? Nairi Bakalian. Bakalian! Damn it, I just lost uh, Armenian street cred. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Uh, even worse is that I asked just before we started recording if I was pronouncing it right. Um, That's okay. That's okay. It's, it's fine. Uh, You're yeah, fine. If, if there's one consistency on this show, it's that I mispronounce everything. Um, so we have been talking about doing an episode together for seemingly since this podcast started. Uh, yeah, just about. <laughs> and you know, now that you're on the show, that means we're officially legitimate. Like we have uh, a PhD of history <laughs> on the show. No, no longer are we just the the emu emu dick joke people. So like, <laughs> I, we're officially past the Rubicon, and we must be taken seriously. Um, Riding the emus to glory. <laughs> How you doing today? Oh, not bad, not bad. It's you know uh, okay as far as you know the the uh, the the new normal, as it were, is concerned. You know, uh, parking you know sit, sitting at, parking my ass at home and trying to get work done remotely and trying to um, <clears throat> not think too much about uh, things beyond my control. You know. That, that seems to be a major struggle for me recently as well. Yeah, yeah, and as Armenians, I mean, this is a this is a thing. I feel like I feel like more than a few of us are probably struggling with this right now in the United States because <sighs> shit hitting the fan is something that we tend to be familiar with, and you know, it sort of runs in the runs in the genes. Like this, 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 this feeling in the pit of the stomach, like, oh my god. Again, <laughs> I, I think one of the things that's pissed me off more than anything, uh, outside of obviously the the, per, the reasons for the protests, is like yeah. the um, the amount of incredibly reactionary Armenians. Oh um, my god! Oh like my it, god! If anybody should understand like state oppression and racism, uh, and, exactly. and like state violence, it would be Armenians. But they're exactly. like, no, this is actually fine. This is totally yeah. cool. Like, yeah, god exactly. Damn it. Like back in 2016, I lost count of the number of people, like Armenian people in the United States, that I heard who voted for the literal Turkish lobby. <laughs> what like, the 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 people the people in the present administration, um, you know the the Russia the Russia connections are sort of at the top of the of of, of a lot of people's minds, but F- General Flynn. As I recall, General Flynn was also a lobbyist for for the Turkish government. Oh yeah, he was. He worked for the AKP party, from my understanding. Yes, yes he worked for Erdogan's <laughs> party. So, like the number of Armenians who voted for the literal Turkish lobby, and who should have fucking known better, but you know, I mean, to be fair, that that tracks. I, I mean, we are an Ouroboros of fucking ourselves over. It, yes, I mean, we our, are. Armenians were like this. Committee of Union and Progress sounds cool. Let's listen to what they have to say. <laughs> like, yeah. oh no, we should have we we should have shot them. Should've. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, big Armenian energy on the podcast. There's never mm-hmm. been uh, there's never been two Armenians on this show at the That's same true. time. That's true. Uh, but uh, the reason why. Uh, uh, you finally came on, or we finally made this work. Was we were both obsessed with uh, the Total War series of uh, uh, yeah. most, mostly the Shogun titles, yeah, uh, and uh, and also all sorts of other uh, Japanese related pop culture. Like for me, the first Shogun came out. I want to say I was in like middle school. 
Um, and it absolutely like grabbed me. And that among a few other things definitely pointed me into the direction of being obsessed with military history forever. Mm. Um, what was your introduction to it? Uh, to the Shogun series? Uh, yeah. that was, that was the same, it was the same one. I would have been, um, about midway through high school, um, living in Beirut, uh, you know, uh, from then that was, I had, hmm. Uh, so I got to see the, from the periphery in the region, I got to see the invasion of Iraq, uh, play out. And it was right around that time that I decided that, no, I don't actually want to be in the U.S. military. Um, yeah, that's probably a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> from, from all I've heard from you, um, it, it just, it seemed like, no, no, this is not, this isn't me. Um, and... I started to think, okay, well, you know, I, I want to do. Uh, what else do I want to do? What else is, what else is is interesting to me? What else do I feel like I I can invest myself in? And you know, what else can I do that can reinvest some of that interest in things military? And I thought, okay, let me do Japanese military history. And one of the earliest pop culture points of connection, points of entry that I had was Shogun One. And along with that, the Ruroni Kenshin uh, manga oh, yeah. and anime. Um, and the Ruroni Kenshin manga and anime actually have, as characters, historical figures who I started asking questions about once I found out they were real people. And that led me to my BA, and that led me to my MA, and that led me to my PhD. So thank you, anime. <laughs> I was really disappointed to find out Kenshin Himura could not defy gravity. Uh Oh, or was I? From my understanding, it was even a real person. But like, yeah, it's really real big letdown. Uh, <laughs> based on a real guy, though. Based on a based on a real guy, um, uh, Kawakami, I think was his name. Uh, yeah, Kawakami Genzai. And how loose is that? Because uh, I know they used um, they call him like one of the four of Bakufu or something like that. And I knew that was based on something that was real. Uh, but like, I was always kind of curious how how fast and loose they played with some of the details to make it entertaining. Other than obviously, you know, Dragon Ball Z samurai fights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, Kawakami Gensai, to my knowledge, only only killed one person whose name escapes me right now. And beyond that, the rest of his reputation is built on hearsay and the school of swordsmanship in which he trained, which is this really, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tradition called Jigenryu. Uh, it comes from Southern Japan where he came from and it, it, it focuses, it, it strongly emphasizes ending the fight with one blow. So all of the energy, all of the momentum goes into the first strike and beyond that, it kind of gets, you kind of get lost. So it's really good for a hit and run you know, uh, 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 attack, but it's not really, it's not really something that's going to make for a, make for something that's going to be a useful sword technique in a long drawn out knockdown drag out fight. So they took sort of the, the, the myth of Kawakami Genzai and some of the hearsay that surrounds his story and reshaped it into this Dragon Ball Z with samurai kind of story, but it was a good story. And I guess that makes sense why they made so much. Um, uh, what do I call it? They made such a big deal of like when he when he drew his sword because then that would be you know one shot knockout. Uh, yeah. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, yeah, yeah. It's actually the 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 maxim, the not motto, but like the 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 phrase that's associated with Jigenryu is uh, no ichi, uh, to strike down with one blow. And yeah, yeah, they made a big deal out of that for that reason. I guess they could have made an anime based off of like worse things. I'm I su- I love it so much. I actually when we started talking about it when we were planning this episode, mm. I started watching it again. But apparently, so I I have it on Hulu, which is apparently the worst translation known to man. Uh, yeah. Because I always watch everything in the background, uh, so I, I always generally watch anime dubbed. Uh, and I watched, you know, Rurouni Kenshin. I don't even know how many times on Cartoon Network growing up, and um, uh, along with the OVAs that came out later on, Samurai X, um, and then there was a movie as well. 
But uh, <laughs> I remember when the movie came out, uh, I was shocked because it actually showed people getting killed. I'm like, what? That's new? <laughs> uh, and I, from my understanding, that's also based on something kind of realistic. Um, uh, I think it's supposed to be based on the Setsuma Rebellion, but not really. Yeah, the what was it, 18, 1876, 1875-1876 um, uh, uh, uprising in southern Japan. Uh, and really, I have opinions there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, the... Yeah, Kenshin started out, as I recall, the the the, the chronology for, for Kenshin, the, the episode starts out in 1877, um, in the wake of the rebellion, and the rebellion itself, like in real life, was led by people who were on the winning side in the Boshin War of 1868, and then didn't like how things played out. And well, decided that or- they were going to up and change their government again, and <laughs> and they were going to like, oh yeah, we're going to march on Tokyo, okay, fine. And then they got the Kumamoto, and they got bogged down into into into. I think I think it was trench warfare at that point. Um, and that's something that's always kind of bothered me about the Setsuma Rebellion. At least the popular narrative of the Setsuma Rebellion was that it was sword wielding and bow wielding samurai against you know. European trained line infantry. That's what it shows in like The Last Samurai. And it shows yeah. it to it shows it in Roroni Kenshin as well in the movie. Yeah. But but they had totally had guns. Yeah, they correct? did. They did. <laughs> they and were the, not the, above shooting people. No. This is this is this is a thing with depictions of the Boshin War too. Um you know, I that was my that was my focus on my in my dissertation. Um this idea that the people who won were the European trained lion infantry and, you know, the forward thinking men of the future who wanted to replace the decrepit and unfair regime, and everybody else was just hidebound traditionalist samurai with their heads up their asses, wielding bows and arrows and swords and spears is bullshit. The, you know, I, I focused on the Northern Alliance and the Northern, that uh, uh, drew together the clans of Northern Honshu. And sure, they had their share of swords and spears and bows and arrows, but they also had Gatling guns and Enfield rifles. You know, <laughs> um, this, and if you think about it, like, okay, why would they still use swords and spears and bows and arrows if they had Gatling guns and Enfield rifles? Well, did it ever occur to anyone that there weren't enough Gatling guns and Enfield rifles to go around? So you might as well use what you have there. Yeah, they're in rebellion and nobody's trading with them. Uh, right. So, <laughs> right. Why don't? So, like, why don't this? It's yeah. the same thing with this with the Satsuma Rebellion. Like, wh- why? Like, especially like, come on! It's the guys in the Satsuma Rebellion. It's the guys who, um, who 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 won the Boshin War. So theoretically, if we're thinking, if we're starting out with talking about the Boshin War, they're supposed to be the quote unquote good guys in the popular history, the European trained line infantry. Why would they suddenly decide? No, I'm going to use a sword. <laughs> Uh, but it, yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with, uh, like, especially, I think the most, the thing in America's mind that, I could be completely wrong, uh, that pops their head because I'm completely talking out of my ass right now, is like The Last Samurai, uh, where they effectively make the samurai of the North the noble savages, right? Like, that they, they treat them like the, the, like the magical pixie dream girls of samurai. Like, no, no, they don't want to use guns because it's dishonorable. Like, no. They totally wanted to shoot people. They had no ammo. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, they started out with guns, but yeah, their they supply is going to run out if you're cut off, and um, uh, you know, you're not exactly going to you're not exactly going to be able to resupply easily. Not to mention also just the depictions of uh, in the Satsuma Rebellion. It it's sort of mixed depending on who was doing the woodblock print. But Saigo Takamori was wearing a Western style uniform for goodness sake. <laughs> was he really? Like, yeah, his statues. His statues depict him in the. I think it's a French style, uh, French style uniform. So, like, what gives? <laughs> that would make a lot of sense um, because wasn't his his one Western ally in real life was a group of French people, right? Saigo Takamori. So Saigo Takamori would have been his allies were British, but um, the so the the shogunate it was the the french guys were on the shogunate side in 1868 but there was a second french military mission in the 1870s and that may be the source of um that may be the source of some of some of that yeah yeah 
I might be thinking of the, oh, was it the Izzo Republic? Yes, Izzo Republic, yeah. Yeah. It was probably one of the weirdest things that I learned that nobody ever, I mean, you know, I grew up in Michigan. There's no Japanese history classes there. Um, And I probably would have studied Japanese history in college if that was an option. Uh, But, you know, it's it's something that's completely left out is that they tried to form their own country. (laughs) Yeah. Not that it was just like some people in a couple village that uh, Tom Cruise visited that started to wage yeah. war. Like, no, they tried yeah. to start their own country. It just didn't pan out. Yeah. 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 Uh, they, they took the, they took the remnants of the, of the Shogunate army and the Northern Alliance and they went up to Hokkaido and they said, okay, this is a Republic now. Oh yeah, sure. Um, the, the thing that really, the thing that really gets me about that is, you know, again, there's this image that, the people seem to have of the of the people of the like the functionaries the officers the politicians of the old shogunate not having any interest in getting with the times but if they did then why did they why were they the only people to elect somebody president in all of japanese history <laughs> i mean, forgot to say something that boggles my mind yeah it's like the main thing that, like, as someone who didn't major in, and, I, and I'm an outsider, I've been mo- mostly educated by myself on the subject, which is never a good sign. Um, it was that they won in the Boshin War, and then they didn't like how they were, like, they, they expected to continue to be treated like kings when everybody else didn't want that anymore, or, or um, yeah, something like that. Saigo, Saigo Takamori and Saigo Takamori and the guys who won the who won the Boshin War, particularly from Satsuma. Yeah, that's that's actually that's actually spot on. Like they 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 beat the Shogunate and the Northern Alliance and the Ezra Republic, and they're like, yeah, sure, no, we're gonna we're gonna get to run the show and get to still have um, still have privileges as, as samurai, and um, and the guys who were running the government, who themselves, some of them were from Satsuma, and some of them were from Choshu, and some of them were from Tosa, said, no, that's not how we're going to do things anymore. And Saigo went to went home to Satsuma, and, you know, he had a bunch of like-minded students at some of the academies that he'd set up, and said okay fine let's uh let's uh go and um i don't know uh let's fuck around and uh change the government again because we don't want to give up this uh this privilege and yeah that's 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 a pretty good summary was he a daimyo or like some some other kind of level of like local noble that gave him that kind of power or oh man saigo takamori saigo takamori was one of these people in satsuma who was born uh, so they were born into the samurai caste, but they were at the bottom end of the samurai caste, and they were like poor enough that I think I think it was Saigo and Admiral Togo, who goes on to fame at the Battle of Tsushima in 1905, um, were born on Cat Piss Alley, is is what the <laughs> name translates to. It's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh no, it was Suddenly Cat being Shit born Alley. in Sodoro. Suddenly being born in Detroit sounds pretty goddamn good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So these guys are born really, really poor, but because they have because they 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 are part of they're part of the the you know, the the the, the young idealistic uh drawn into nationalist ideology uh coterie in Satsuma they make the right connections with the right people and they have this meteoric rise from the 1850s to the end of the 1860s until Saigo Takamori wound up being one of the leading men in the Satsuma domain under the nominal leadership of the daimyo who was a Shimazu something or other. I think it was uh, Shimazu... This gets this gets into this gets into weird like old blue blooded samurai lineage stuff, but like um, Shimazu, like Date in the north, has is a family that's like big enough and old enough that it has like twelve plus major branches, and if the daimyo's line died out, somebody got adopted in from one of the branches. So the daimyo's line died out in the eighteen fifties, and then the son of one of the branch lineages. Uh, was adopted in, and because he was like five, his father Shimazu Shimazu Hisamitsu 
was in charge of governing affairs, and in Hisamitsu's circle was Saigo Takamori and these other guys. Okay. Um, the only thing I'm th- I'm picturing in my head is I'm a huge Seven Samurai nerd, so I can just think like Kimichio rolling out the fake thing, like, no, no, really, I should be in charge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like, with a nominal claim of legitimacy, like, oh, no, really, I should be in charge. Shut up, kid. <laughs> so it's... And that's something, those are all things that are actually in Shogun too, which is, is why, why it shocked me and why I think that you came on the show. is like, wow, this this game's actually like kind of historically accurate. Like all yes, those things is. happened. <laughs> yes, it is. Shogun 1 uh, was okay. Like it, it, it got it got some of it, but it got like a really sort of postage stamp, blurry uh, rendition, if you will. But Shogun 2, first of all, the maps are much bigger. Yes, they and are. And you can't just put your unit wherever the hell you want on the province, on the prov- on the, the nationwide map. Um, so you have to be mindful of logistics. You have to be mindful of econ- economics. You have to be mindful of internal clan politics. Um, you have to be mindful of, um, do I have an heir to replace me? What yeah. lineages, what branches of my family have produced heirs that can replace can replace my daimyo? That's like all real world stuff that they've worked into this sequel, and that's why it's so hard. It's so hard because it's so realistic. Yeah, and you can marry into each other's families, and then when it comes to like realm divide, which I mean, at this point, I'm assuming people listening have played the game. Um, if not, uh, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, but, it's good. But, it's good. Yeah. Uh, but also, like, you know, uh, Realm Divides when you choose if you're going to be, you know, you allied with the Imperial side or allied with the Shogunate side. Or in Fall of the Samurai, you can do your own thing and start a Republic, which is a terrible idea. Uh, it does not work. Um, but, yeah, marriages and everything totally matter. In, in, a, in a micro set or in a macro sense, it's not like Crusader Kings or any Paradox game or anything like that. But... It, yeah, it it's it's a completely different universe. I mean, you saw. I mean, I don't know how many Total War games you've played, but if you play the old medieval ones, um, they did the same thing. Where it's like, oh, this France is three whole regions. Okay, <laughs> this is easy. But now you know everything is everywhere, and you actually have to plan stuff. Like you have to plan like uh, naval lanes, and you have to plan trade routes because then they can raid your trade routes. And then you end up like me as uh, Satsuma trapped on my one providence and being strangled to death by everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 got that it's got that very real uh back to the wall sense of urgency um in moments like that in particular because you have to you have to not just worry about your own clan and the people who are on your immediate borders, but you have to uh, keep the nationwide view of politics in mind. You, in particularly in the in in the original Shogun Two, you can't um, you can't go about what you do without bearing in mind what the Shogun thinks and how that's going to impact who's going to start shooting at you. Um, it's really it's it, it, I am deeply impressed like having started out playing or the original Shogun and then only played Shogun 2 like a few weeks ago when it was for free on Steam um yeah, I am that was awesome. deeply impressed that is they've done well they've done well did you want to talk about how exactly they did so well I know you have some takes on that well, I mean, some of it is some of it is what we were just talking about in terms of in terms of the complexity and level of difficulty. Um, some of it, uh, and I haven't played the Fall of the Samurai expansion just yet, so I can't speak directly on that. But um, uh, some of it is that they have um, they have really delved like beyond what they had in the original one. They've really delved into who what was the what was the lineage of this clan? Like, who? What were the names in this clan? What are the broad characteristics of the famous people in this clan? And then worked them into the game as bits of the game that have impact on how the game turns out. Um, 
they also don't neglect things like naval warfare. Uh, they also don't neglect things like there being border, re- you know, little blurry regions on the edges of Japan where there was there was some more international trade. Like in Shogun 2, you can go up to, it's not called Hokkaido at that point, but you can go up to the southern tip of Ezo and trade with the Ainu. You can go to Tsushima and trade with Korea. It's, you know, these are, these are legit middle ground regions where, where that happened. Um, something that I'm a little bit confused at is why they felt the need to use modern prefecture names for some of the provinces. So I played as Date, who I wrote a whole ass dissertation about. Um, <laughs> They, I, I, people, whenever I say that, people tell me, well, better to write a whole ass dissertation than a half ass dissertation. Uh, well, I mean, how do you think no, I feel? My, my degree would disagree. Uh, <laughs> built upon half ass dissertations. I mean, you know, the, what matters is that it's done. <laughs> what that matters is, is that it's done. Um, but, but like, I, the, the, I, I, so I had to play as the Date, but. They start out in, in the game calls it Iwate. Iwate is the modern prefecture name, which is sort of two thirds in the Tohoku region. So those people, those of your listeners who follow me on Twitter will hear me very often talking and waxing poetic about the Tohoku region. So that's basically everything from uh, Fukushima all the way up to Aomori at the northern tip of the main island. Um, so Iwate is about two thirds of the way up on the Pacific Coast side, but it wasn't called Iwate until like uh, 1878, I think. Um, and if we're starting out in like 1530, why are yeah. we calling it Iwate? Uh, that should be Rikuchu, and the Date shouldn't be coming from there. That's not where they come from. <laughs> the Date <laughs> it, come it, from <laughs> the it's, Date. It's weird they they Sorry, they. Oh uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. The Date come from the so the they have this game has Miyagi, which is the region that so modern Miyagi Prefecture the bound roughly the boundaries of modern Miyagi Prefecture were the boundaries of the Date territory when the Date territory was abolished in the eighteen seventies and that was sl- like I think a third reduced from what it was at its extent so that's that's a little bit further south from Iwate but. Uh, the Date themselves come from what in the game is called Fukushima, which in period... Uh, unfortunate. Should, <laughs> I know, right? Which in period, it should be called, it should be, well, depending on what part of it you're looking at, it should be called Iwaki or Iwashiro. Um, you know, that's the... Fukushima and Miyagi and Iwate are all modern names. So, same goes for, for Aomori. And, um, but then... But then on the on the Sea of Japan side, you have the period names Uzen and Ugo. So what gives? That's um, like a small thing to nitpick, but like, come on, come on. Yeah, that I think says something to like some pretty uneven research because like, if yeah. if they had in person Japanese researchers or like primary researchers, they would have figured that out, right? Yeah. They would have. They would have. It would have been very obvious. Like, they didn't even need to do any Japanese research. Like, you, you can open up, like, samuraiarchives.com, and it's it's there. Like, you can look at Wikipedia. Um, and this was 2011 that this was made, as I recall. So, um, you know, it's not like they it's not like they didn't have a plethora of, of uh, internet sources at their disposal in English. So... Well, they certainly used... Some sources in English, though, uh, that, did the re- that did the researches for them, it sounds certainly, like, right? Certainly, certainly. Uh, I mean, the, I was part of a community um, for, uh, since the early 2000s of fans of this of the 1860s in Japanese history, and um, we, uh, we pioneered a lot of the conversation that happened on the English language side of the internet about Japan in the 1860s because it's not really a topic that the academic world has in English has any interest in like it's it's considered I, I guess I feel like it's considered passe um, everybody's either in a hurry to wrap up their discussion of what came before or they're in a hurry to start the discussion of what came afterwards but nobody wants to talk about this really important period where the empire was born um, so I was I was one of the, quite a few people who, who wrote about that and 
Some of the clans, I'm, I don't want to, I'm not, uh, just in my opinion, I'm going to preface it that way. <laughs> in my opinion, some of the clans in the in the DLC seem awfully specific for clans that there really wasn't much on in English in the, in the time when this game was, in the lead up to when this game came out. So I feel like, you know, I, I had an indirect hand in this game, even though I didn't even become aware of it until later. And they're, of course, not going to cite that at all. Oh, no, right? no, 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 no. I mean, do they do they cite any of the research? I, I mean, I would I be hard pressed. Deeply enough into the into the credits to see if they do. Um, that that would be worth looking at. I mean, I imagine some of their some of their starting research was on Wikipedia. But hell, I was writing some of this stuff on Wikipedia, particularly circa two thousand eight. So, right. Um, you know, there's there's actually there's there's content on the Bushing War that's still up on Wikipedia that's essentially unchanged from what I wrote in 2008 that I'm pretty sure they would have had to rely on. Um, so, you know, again, in my opinion. Um, Alle- allegedly. We, allegedly. We, do not have, we do not have a lawyer on retainer. We, we do not have a... You, do, you and I do not have lawyers on retainer. So, allegedly, this is my opinion that this is, this is how it seems to me. Um, but, I mean, hey, you know, they made a nice game. So, fine by me. You know, I, if somebody took my research, none of which is super, super unique, I'm sure, because uh, I, I don't have a PhD, uh, but um, and they and they didn't cite me, I'd I guess I'd be fine with it because that happens all the time. Um, yeah, if yeah. you write if you write enough papers, they will be submitted into databases, and somebody will definitely steal from it. That's just how the world works. Yeah, exactly. I've done it exactly, exactly. <laughs> You know, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain too much. Um, besides, that was <laughs> that it was after I was I, I was active in in history writing in that way that I thought, okay, if I'm gonna keep doing this and people are gonna be able to take advantage of my work without citing it because some of it is on Wikipedia, why don't I go to grad school and get an MA and a PhD so that I can be able to write this? You know, be have credentials that are going to shut people up um, was how I rationalized it uh, when I was going in. Um, so, I mean, obviously, yeah. you don't need, like, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. You don't need a graduate degree to write about history. Some of the most, some of the most important work that I relied on in my, writing my dissertation actually was from um was from uh, local scholars in Japan who had no degrees at all. Um, you know, this is legit. Public his- public history is a thing. Local history is a thing. Um, but in 2008, 2009, my rationale was that if I want to be writing history and I want to be putting my name on it, let's go to grad school and get a degree. So uh, I can see the value in that. I mean, I run this show and I have a bachelor's degree. Um, and has it helped me in the show? Maybe. Uh, I know how to write research papers. Like yeah. I know that's 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 it. I mean, yeah. that's that's all it is. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's not gonna. It doesn't mean. And this is something that I wish I could go back in time to two thousand nine and tell my younger self. Having the fancy letters after your name doesn't mean that people owe you respect. All that means is that you have at least in theory learned the rigor um, of you know, behind, behind doing the due diligence in the proper kind of research work and synthesis. And like, you're not, you're not doing the, you know, you're not, you're going a little bit deeper than first this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Um, you know, it's, it's the difference between, um, the difference between what happened and why did it happen? Why do you think it happened? So, uh, but it doesn't mean anybody owes me any respect. In fact, it doesn't mean that I'm going to even be employed because I can tell you right now that uh, having a PhD has probably done more than anything else to harm my chances of getting full-time employment. Um, it's only recently that I've gotten part-time employment after three freaking years. So... Yeah, this podcast is currently my job, so I feel, <laughs> I feel you're paid. Yeah, uh, yeah, 
you know, between uh, between the PhD and being a queer woman, it's like it's like you know, uh, it's not it's <laughs> it's it's complicated lately uh, being able to make ends meet. So the world of academia being unfair. No, no. What the hell you say? <laughs> if if only you were a white man that graduated from Yale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that. Honestly, it, Twitter is a pile of shit, and I believe is actively bad for humanity by existing. Uh, I say as I'm on it, but um, yes, it, it has it. It has done one thing to history graduates everywhere, and maybe you'll agree with me. It's really shown that Ivy League schools are fucking bullshit because every single terrible history take I see, almost every time in the in like their bios, like Yale to the twenty sixteen or like fucking Harvard grad, like really, I went to a shitty state school, and I'm like, I still understand that the Civil War is about slavery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah I I haven't seen too much of that, but I've seen a bit of it, and yeah, I would have to agree. It's like, wow, you you went to somewhere that expensive and you didn't get this stuff. Come on. I think a good example of that I think is like Ben Sass is the, the congressman. I think oh. and literal and, PhD uh, in history, right? I I don't think he has a PhD, but I know he has a history degree from an Ivy League school. Um, it was one then, of those. It was one of those guys. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely astounding, um, and I'm sure a lot of that is how much are you willing to sell your soul to get into politics. Uh, but I also think mm-hmm. that a lot of that is how much are you willing to sell your soul to get into an Ivy League college. Uh, it, it's it's a gateway drug into fucking yourself yeah. over. Yeah, I mean, uh, once upon a time I had dreams of of uh, of going to Penn, but. Um, yeah, that wasn't going to pan out, even if there was somebody there who I could have worked with. I think one of the the biggest saving graces for me is I got into Oxford and I did not go. Uh, (laughs) I was, because I mean, it's, you know, prohibitively expensive for, uh, uh, someone just getting out of the military to go overseas to go to college. Um, yeah, the the GA bill ain't covered all that. And I did not feel like working, uh, which I ended up working anyway, but, uh, and I'm like, you know, Maybe I don't want to do that. And then I'm later finding out that, like, every, seemingly everyone from a higher level of education from the UK is a, a fucking smooth brain turf. And I am like, ooh, dodge that bullet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wasn't personally, I wasn't planning on attending Pitt, but, uh, you know, I was trying to get to Seattle and uh, things fell through over there. And, um, Things fell through with Ohio State, and Pitt took me, and here I am a decade later getting by somehow. I mean, I mean mind you, mind you, the the I have I have I have plenty of I have plenty of hot takes as far as the Pitt history department itself, but I'll save those for another time. <laughs> yeah, I I have problems with my history department as well, um, and I'm sure I will. I plan on going to graduate or finishing graduate school at the University of Hawaii. Uh, so we'll we'll see. Um, I'm sure it'll be interesting, but I'll save yeah. my comments on the uh, on UH when I get there. Um, <laughs> it's it, it, I think one of the things that's uh, that my history education um, has taught me more than anything else is like how to look at how to look at dumb, bad, uh, ahistorical films, but still enjoy them. And it's it's yes. been it's been really hard. Um, the last samurai when we did our bonus episode, I, I think I had to keep repeating. I really do like this movie, but it's yeah. really fucking dumb, and that's yeah. fine. This is okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I imagine sto- you find it yourself doing the same thing. It can be a good story and be ahistorical. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a dumb action movie, but also Tom Cruise uses two samurai swords to cut a man's head off. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, I don't even like Tom Cruise. You could make that Vin Diesel. I'm still gonna think it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, like Kenshin, I, like Kenshin. I mean, come on. Yeah, it can be no, over I, the top. It's just it, but we can also appreciate that it's a historical. Yeah, and I think that's something that uh, I think Paul Mooney made a joke that uh, they should make uh, the last black person on Earth starring Tom Hanks. <laughs> 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 it was like fuck, <laughs> uh, but 
it's it has made it hard to enjoy some things. Um, it's made it a lot harder to deal with like stupid criticisms of of, of good things. Um, but I imagine you run into that a little bit less when you. I mean, because every once in a while, uh, popular Japanese history doesn't really crap up all that much in America, right? Like we get Shogun Two, really. we get Shogun yeah. One. Uh, yeah. You know, Rurouni Kenshin was famous in what the late nineties, and then it's yeah, just yeah. nothing. Yeah, it's not that. It's not that much. I mean, people know their Kurosawa and 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 what have you, but guilty when you guilty when you, <laughs> when you talk about when you talk about well, but as far as these things go, Kurosawa is honestly on the better end. Um, but um, but uh, popular culture wise, oh god, as far as Japanese history goes, the Last Samurai is the one that I I hear about most recently. It actually is kind of divided around along generational lines, so. Certain age and below, it'll be Last Samurai. Certain age and above, it'll be Shogun. Like, the James Clavell miniseries. I have heard mixed things about the miniseries. Well, it was originally, a, a, like, a super long book. I have not I read, read it. Yeah. And and I, I, want, I try to be gracious about that book and be like, okay, yeah, I read it too. It was entertaining. But, like, he didn't do his legwork at all. At all. It was, it was mean, painful. Was it... From my understanding, it's just a whole bunch of people getting beheaded all the time. Like yeah. it, pe- people commented about that a lot. Is like, yeah, there's someone getting their head cut off like every ten pages. Yeah, it's it's people getting their heads cut off and people fucking. Um, and uh, and the thing that really I mean, gets I'm not here to kink shame anybody in Japan. Right, right. Uh, that's, <laughs> but that's your thing, the, man. The, the thing that really the thing that really gets me about about James Clavell's Shogun is that he doesn't seem to have done his homework with basic Japanese. <laughs> like it's a low fucking bar. It, like just basic basic greetings and just basic elementary uh, conversation that Anjin and his Japanese the Japanese people he's usually around uh, tend to have. Like the in the novel like that that was that was so bad. That was such broken Japanese. Like what are what are, what are you even doing here? Like, why are you? Uh, um, and uh, you know, Anjin, of course, based on a real historical figure, you know, that's legit, fine. But well, why did Clavel have to make up an entire shogun and make up an entire like he took he took like Japan roughly fifteen ninety eight to sixteen oh three and ran it through a blender? Like it it was. <laughs> It's that like, is okay, how Western audiences consume, like Eastern history. Though that's how they consume most things. Um, yeah, you know, like fair. I, I, I think most people would, at least my generation again, um, would uh, think that they understood most Chinese history from like the Dynasty Warriors games, or like maybe oh, if we're lucky, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms novels, which yeah. I highly doubt they've yeah. read them, and yeah. those are. I mean, they're not true. I mean, it's, the people in them did exist, but again, yeah, yeah. it's mystical history thrown into a blender and then made into a Mizzou video game. Yeah. Uh, God, when it comes to Last Samurai, it was I did a live t- I did a live tweet when as I watched it before my appearance on the Outlaw History podcast last year, and I remember the way I described it was history sausage. <laughs> Like I hadn't, I hadn't seen it since it was in theaters in the early two thousands, and then I watched it again last year. And it, with the benefit of all those years and all that academic training, and you know, having done a dissertation focused on that period, it was like, okay, why? No, no, no. What are you doing? Why? No, no. Like not even. <laughs> like okay, fine. It was pretty. The soundtrack was gorgeous, but. It was so monumentally historically irresponsible. Like it took 1867 to 1876 and squished it into a year and a half and made an American guy the focus. When if we really <laughs> wanted to be, if we really wanted to do this, ju- this justice, it would have better been a Prussian or a French guy. Um, like there was this, there was this real world person um, named. Uh, actually, were brothers uh, Heinrich and Edvard Schnell, who ran guns for the Northern Alliance during the Boschian War, and you know they they became vassals of Lord Matsudaira of Aizu, and they were allowed to wear the Lord's crest, and they had the two swords, and they had vassals and houses in in the in the castle town of Wakamatsu. You know they ran Gatling guns up north from Shanghai. Um, this is two Prussian guys. There's two Prussian guys. Yeah. 
That's amazing. Yeah, so, two like, Prussian gunrunners. Yeah, the the real white samurai dudes were Germans. Yeah, they were ger- they were ger- they were pr- Prussian ger- German dudes who, after the war ended, took a number of the local uh, former samurai and went to California to set up a tea <laughs> and silk farm. Uh, and there's a monument. I think the California California whatever it's called, like the California Historical Society or whatever, has a plaque there. Um, the first Japanese woman to be buried in North America is buried there, um, and uh, me and a couple of me and a couple of friends who sort of did a lot of this research on the side just as as a passion. Um, we managed to we put the right people into contact, and in the end, one of these Prussian guys' sword, like his legit samurai sword, was turned up in some warehouse in Sacramento. So, yeah, you know, it's it's upsetting that they decided to go with the Tom Cruise gets yeah. kidnapped and the magically turns into a samurai angle because two random Germans becoming Japanese nobility and then fucking fucking off to California is way more inter- entertaining. Yeah, and, I certainly like, think so. <laughs> Fuck it off to California, starting a starting a farm, failing at the farm. Uh, I think the as I recall. At least one of them died near Los Angeles or San Diego selling moonshine. Got taken out by Armenian gun runners. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I, I've I've met the I've met the the descendants of, of some Armenian gun runners from like the pre genocide days. Oh man. That's a whole other story. <laughs> um Oh god. Anyway, so last samurai, um uh it, it it didn't even do it didn't even do justice to the seasons. Like I have lived in Japan in winter. They didn't have like there's a there's the bit of the story where it's the dead of winter and there's snow on the ground and the mountain passes are closed off and nobody's wearing over over boots, straw over boots, nobody's wearing overcoats, nobody's wearing padded kimono. Like what the fuck? No, we all just sit out here in our robes and freeze to death. That's, that's the noble yes, thing to do. Stoically, yes. Um, the Imperial Army in the opening scene, like the Imperial Army supposedly of 1875, is dressed like the Shogunate Army of 1864. Um, that, that's that's always bothered me. Is they went for he was in captivity for what six months? Yeah. So they went from a a backwards ass. Uh, army that did not exist at the time made of conscripts and straw hats and couldn't fire a weapon. And within yep. six six months, they're like, yep, ready to invade France now. Yep. That's yep. not how that works. That's <laughs> not how that worked at all. <laughs> Military modernization under the Shogunate is something that I, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to, you know, it's harder now without an academic affiliation, but I'm trying to explore and write about and a couple of the podcasts that have been on this year so far I've actually been able to talk about that a little bit but there's a lot of attention paid to the uh, Imperial Army and Imperial Navy and what they did in the early to mid um, uh, Meiji period, you know, uh, uh, and it, it's as if it's as if it appears out of thin air. And if we actually did our due diligence and talked about the Shogunate, the modern Shogunate Army and Navy founded in the 1850s, which existed until 1869, and how that was like the core of uh, both installations and equipment, but also uh, uh, trained personnel from which the Imperial Army and Navy drew and made all of those other th- later things possible, like, we would have a better appreciation for where they come from. Um, I mean, for goodness sakes, the Imperial Japanese Navy Academy uh, was founded on the grounds of the Shogunate Navy Academy and most people don't aren't really familiar with the Shogunate Navy Academy, but if I say the name Tsukiji, those of your listeners who have been to Tokyo might know what I'm talking about. Tsukiji, as in the fish market, is where the the Shogunate Naval Academy was. So, you know, it's we're we're losing a lot by not really studying this period. In Japanese, there's really no problem because there's all kinds of writing on this period. But in English, it's like you know, in in the academe, nobody really nobody really seems to care. There's a few people who write about it, but they, but because in academe you have to be a generalist, you have to be able to teach 
like a hundred survey courses on like absolutely anything they throw at you, nobody's got the time to focus on anything. So you know, uh, we all lose yeah. out that way. So here I, mean, I, I am as a as a I voice on the too. outside yelling about the Boshin War and about Northern Honshu uh, over Twitter. That's like I I've run into that to the point like I majored in European history. Uh, we talk about European history a lot on the show. Obviously, I like it, but like I did not study all of European history. So it's like, oh, you don't know about this one minute thing in this bumfuck Egypt ass town in the ass end of England or something at the turn of the century. You you're faking it. Oh God, fuck off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I literally wrote my uh, uh, my capstone on uh, Napoleon's logistic system. That's it. That's what I studied was yeah. wagons. I studied fucking wagons. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did. I did my dissertation on the on the Tohoku on the Northern Alliance and the the the, the northern the roots of northern semi autonomy. Like, why are you asking me? What does this have to do with China? <laughs> well, how about we talk about aircraft carriers from World War II? Like, wrong era. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For fuck's sake! So it's like I, I, I have these. I have when I, when when I get that, I just I have this, I, I have this inclination to do like you know like my 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 Armenian my late lamented Armenian grandmothers and be like oh faman aman aman. <laughs> I just fuck like really really not everybody's going to know absolutely every like this this there's this idea that if you if you any area professionally in any in any capacity on history you know absolutely everything that happened ever everywhere yeah you're the doctorate of all of history right that's what like, you are yes I, I i arrived in my blue in my blue uh uh uh, bo- uh, uh phone phone booth shaped uh, uh spaceship of time and space and and here's my uh, sonic screwdriver. Like, really? Really? <laughs> uh, I run into that all the time, um, mostly because I talk about American history an, an awful lot. Uh, I mean, Confederates are low-hanging fruit, and it's it's easy content. I'm, I'm going to be straight up front. Like, I just like laughing at Confederates, um, especially neo-Confederates and racists. But they're like, yeah, well, you- yeah. well, how about this one battle in the back-ass where George? I'm like, I don't fucking know. I took literally one college-level American history class because I had to. Like everything I talk about is common fucking sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I only got into American history because I came I, I I came to it from Japanese history. Like when I was living in Japan, I was blown away by how people my age didn't really know their history, and I thought, okay, I don't want to be I don't want to be this over there. Let me start learning American history. And then when I did my grad school work. I started noticing points of connection over and over and over between American history of the 1860s and Japanese history of the 1860s, and that, just via a backdoor, made me a scholar of the American Civil War. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, it comes comes down to um, the Japanese Civil War. I call it the Civil War because... um, we ca- to use the term Meiji Restoration sounds peaceful, and that's bullshit. Um, right. And I want people to square with this. So the Japanese Civil War of 1868 to 1869 was fought with surplus uh, equipment from the American Civil War. Um, literally, samurai with Gatling guns. Like, um, you know, old Gatling guns. Um, uh, there was also... I saw... One of my one of the most amazing things I saw in my research was a a hand a photo of a handwritten receipt for Enfield rifles and knapsacks formerly used by the U.S. Army <laughs> that were sold to the Date clan of Sendai. That's a strong tradition that we carry on to this day. Don't need this anymore. Dump it in a different country and let them kill each other with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 this goes back this goes back all the way to the beginning in our in our in in, in U.S. history. It turns out we're just American history just proxy wars all the way down just forever. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good descriptor. Although the Bushing War, really, if you're going to position it as a proxy war of anybody, it's going to be the French against the British. Um, I mean that that makes sense. It's. The Americans tried to pretend to be neutral, but if you read the diaries of American, particularly Navy personnel who were there at the time, they're very clearly on the side of the Northern Coalition. 
you know, they're like, yeah, no, we don't like these Southern guys. They're assholes. <laughs> so we do a thing on this show called questions from the Legion. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and if you want to ask a question from the Legion, you can do a dollar to the show and ask this in discord. Um, that's the plug. Uh, so this is actually an incredibly interesting question to me because I've studied it quite a bit, but I want other people to hear it from someone who's significantly more qualified than myself. Um, when did Japanese Bushido warrior culture start and when, and how did it become a thing? Oh man, this concept of Bushido. Uh... Truly it's okay. an ancient art, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the thing that most people are, most people are thinking of when they talk about Bushido today is from this book that was written by this guy named Nitobe Inazo in uh, late 19th century, I think. Now, Nitobe came from a samurai family from the from northern Honshu, from my part of Japan. Um, but he was like he was born in the very, I think, the very late 1860s, and he w- wouldn't have had any memory of it himself, like the old samurai days. He grew up with stories in his family. So Nitobe became a Quaker, Lame. and. While he was in uh, while he was in Pennsylvania, where I am sitting as I talk to you now, uh, in Malvern, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, he wrote this book called Bushido: The Soul of Japan. And so he, the way that he characterized the uh, ethos and the mentalities of the Japanese warrior caste, and you know, called it Bushido, became most Westerners' idea of Bushido. Um, so, th- and this is a book that even like Teddy Roosevelt read and praised, apparently. Uh, but before that, it wasn't that there was any any one code that the the Japanese warrior caste would have followed. Every clan, every like daimyo, every 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 fiefdom had its own internal sort of domain constitution and code of conduct for everybody who was a vassal. Um, you know the code of the Matsudaira clan of Aizu is the one that I studied most closely, but I've read a little bit of the Date one, and I've read a little bit of the Tokugawa one, and then there's the Tokugawa, modern Tokugawa army and navy um, code of military justice, which gets weird and, you know, it's significantly copied from the French, and basically everything is punishable by death. Um, <laughs> so... F- fucking Warhammer justice in Japan. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much, pretty much. Like they, they had a discipline problem that was that gigantic that they made just about everything. Like, yeah, you will be shot. <laughs> um, you will be shot. You will be like, and if it's not shot, it's exile. Um, <laughs> like it was, it was bad. Like it's, talking about like street fighting and riots that burn down theaters, kind of bad discipline. Um, but yeah, so there's these. There, so each clan, each local government, or the, in the shogunate's case, a loose central government, um, has its own rules for how its warriors should act. So there isn't any one code of conduct for how a Japanese a person in the warrior caste should act. And I should uh, I should add to this that um, we call we shorthanded as samurai today. But in Japanese, particularly in the 1860s, to say samurai would refer to the bottom of the warrior caste. You wouldn't call the shogun a samurai. Um, the warrior caste were bushi or buke, um, warrior knights or warrior families. But the samurai uh, were the bottom. They were the foot soldiers, the hereditary infantry privates. Oh, that sucks. I mean, it sucks to enlist as that job, but man, it must suck even worse to be born into it. Yeah, born into it and have it be hereditary. Like clans, there are clans like like with Date. There are clans where the samurai, also known as Ashigaru, a name that might be familiar to people who've played Shogun. Um, Ashigaru, I always uh, equate them to shitty spearmen. Now, thanks a yeah. lot, Shogun. Yeah. <laughs> Ashiga, they were they were paid so poorly, and basically across the Edo period, there was a pay there was a freeze on pay raises. 
um, that they basically became like they had another job that there was their that was their mainstay for income, and they would get like a nominal stipend from the Lord. So this one group, this one unit of Ashigaru that was uh, assigned with hereditary guard duty of some of the bridges that run east out of the Sendai Castle town, um, their way of making money was they were pastry cooks. And they made the Japanese version of a Rice Krispie Street. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, the bridge security guard, but also would you like a Rice Krispie Treat as you walk across my bridge? Yeah, <laughs> I'm really I'm really glad that soldiers don't do that today because they would just be trying to make shit in a rice cooker in the barracks and stand. <laughs> hey, I got some I got some of this rice and hot dogs from the from the shop at. You want some? No, nah, man, I'm good. So you keep guard keep guarding that bridge. Yes, I have. I have the Overwatch and the snacks. <laughs> yeah, that's something that um, that Bushido Code thing has always interested me because obviously most people know about it from World War Two. Yes, uh, where, where they're like, no, they're following the way of the warrior. Like that shit came out like fifty years ago. Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, th- this idea that, that that surrender was not a concept that Japanese warriors understood is also patently false. Like, if surrender and defeat were not concepts that they understood, then Tokugawa Ieyasu, the first shogun, would have died in 1573. Um, they ransomed each other off all the time. Yeah, they did. They did. <laughs> they, God, Ieyasu in particular, like, the reason, part of the reason that he became shogun was because he knew how to learn from defeat. To the point that 1573, when the Takeda clan kicked his ass at Mikatagahara, as soon as he got back to his castle, he had his paint, he had his his clans, like artists, their combat artist or like painter or whatever, come out and paint him in his, still in his gear with his, uh, with his chin in his hand, sort of looking dejected. And so that he would, <laughs> the point was so that he would never forget what he looked like at his lowest. And, you know, if, if he was supposed to commit seppuku after losing once, that, he wouldn't have gotten anywhere. Ye old combat camera guys, someone like yeah. a bottle of paint. Like, oh man, I hope he's going to kill himself. I don't want to paint that. The 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 story that I've heard, and I don't, and I and I don't know if this is true, but the story that I've heard is that Ieyasu shot himself in the saddle as he was riding <laughs> back. So, like, imagine the smell in this painting uh, oh, is, is what God. I always tell people. Just sitting there, covered in like sweat shit and like probably he'd been campaigning for weeks months yeah. oof yeah I mean, yeah if, if the whole concept of killing yourself um if you lose it, it, i mean it's gonna sound kind of ironic it's self-defeating because that means like nobody's ever gonna get promoted nobody's ever gonna right. advance right I, mean, I also think that um i mean westerners believe that i believe because the japanese imperial government wanted them to believe that because they wanted their people to believe that I mean, it was like official state policy to teach that school and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and mostly because um, uh, the, the we've talked about it a little bit before on the show, uh, but the, the minister of education was a nationalist, and that was his whole plan. So it's like, yeah, that tracks. This isn't some ancient warfare shit. This is just like, he's just kind of a dick. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm glad we finally did this. Uh, yes, and this absolutely. Is, this is what we call our plug zone. Do you have anything you want? I know you have a book coming out. I got yes, it. I do. Uh, and it's fucking outstanding. Uh, it's, I, honestly, the best thing about being an author is that other people send you really good books. Oh, uh, before, before Before anybody else. So I am spoiled. Uh, plug away. So I have a book coming out in early August called Grey Dawn. And um, it's... Well, it's kind of hard to describe genre-wise because it's at the intersection of a bunch of different genres, but it's basically a time travel romance um, involving a cis lesbian from the 1860s uh, who uh, joined the Union Army to fight uh, for abolition, getting thrown forward in time to the 21st century, and meeting and... uh, uh, growing close with a modern-day trans lesbian who is newly out of the army after 17 years, and the two of them finding common ground, but also uh, uh, trying to cope with uh, uh, trauma, 
and loss and finding new purpose and finding new things to fight for uh, in the present day. And so pre-orders go up July 6th, and uh, I'm really excited about this. You know, between being broke and contending with ADD, finishing a novel um, is something kind of on the order of having finished a dissertation. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what people have to say about it, but I, for my part, I think I'm, I'm proud of myself for having, having, uh, having put it together. And here's a little, here's a little, uh, a little, um, uh, not hint, but a little, a, a, a little, a little note that I might offer to people who read this. Um, my mental framework for how I built this story is in the form of a Japanese null play. So if you're familiar with null, there's some things about the narrative structure that might be familiar to you. And if you want to follow me on social media, uh, I would love to hear from you. Riverside Wings at Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, and uh, sponsors. Thank you. And as soon as um, that pre-order link goes up, I'll make sure I share it so people can buy this awesome book. Um, so normally we close this out with like, in the meantime, don't do this from something stupid in our series. So I guess until next time, don't shit in your armor and get a painting done. <laughs> And we'll see you next time. See you next time.